To Malinui, fumigation from aromatics, I call Malinui saffron-veiled, Tyrini, who from Persephone dread, venerable queen, mixed with Zeus, Cronion, arose near where Cocytus's mournful river flows, when, under Pluton's semblance, Zeus divine deceived with guileful arts, dark, Persephone, two-bodied from Pluton, dark from Zeus, ethereal bright. Men by night inspire when seen in spectred forms with terrors dire. Now darkly visible, involved in night, perspicuous now they meet the fearful sight. Cathonian queen, expel wherever found the soul's mad fears to earth's remotest bound. With holy aspect on our incense shine, and bless thy mystics and thy rites divine. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Oh, hi there. Happy spookiest of episodes to you all. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, Liv, the woman who absolutely lives for spooky season. Because who doesn't love an excuse to let your morbid weirdo emo flag fly? That piece that I read at the top was, yes, the Orphic Hymn to Malinui. Because today, on this episode before Halloween, I give you the realm of the dead. 
the underworld, Hades, Tartarus, and the infernal and chthonic goddesses that live in that space. We love a goth woman living amongst the dead. For clarity, both those words, infernal and chthonic, essentially mean the same thing, that these are characters of the underworld. It's just that they're both great words that I want to use, even if it sounds like I'm being repetitive, which I am. But you all know I could say chthonic forever and be perfectly happy. As I mentioned last week, I had planned to have only one episode dedicated to Hecate and these goddesses of the underworld, but then I started reading Dr. Ellie Mack and Roberts' book, Underworld Gods in Ancient Greek Religion, and I got too intrigued by, well, the underworld realm itself, uh, but then I found too much on the goddesses, so um, we have more spooky season for the future, really. It just means I'm not running out anymore. Thank the gods. We are still focusing today, though, on the ladies that are lurking down there in the realm of the dead. I covered that realm and some of the goddesses so long ago now, and again, before I got any of the enormous number of supremely academic and nerdy books that I now own about such things, let alone before I honed my research skills. So here we are, at it again, talking all things spooky, scary, and very, very dead. Tis the season, after all. This is episode 186, Living Amongst the Dead, the Underworld and its Infernal Chthonic Cuties. Is Chthonic Cuties taking away from their badassery? I don't know, but I really enjoy the alliteration with it. So we are sticking with Chthonic Cuties. Now, I may have started off this episode with a reading of the Orphic Hymn to Malinui, but before we look at that goddess of Chthonic goodness, we're starting off with the queen herself, because she deserves nothing less. Let's talk about Persephone. Again, because gods know I've talked about her before, but there's always more to learn, more sources to look at, more nuance to dive into, especially with a woman like the dread goddess of the underworld, one I know is most, if not a huge swath of your favorites, Persephone. The idea of Persephone as goddess of the dead, dread queen of the underworld, wife of Hades, comes from as far back as Homer. What this means is that in the very earliest mythology that survives for us today, Persephone is not only the queen of the underworld and goddess of the dead, but she is always just as powerful as her husband, Hades. In the Odyssey, you might remember, it's Persephone who allows Odysseus to interact with that realm of the dead, to speak with those who have already passed on, to learn from them. It's Persephone who controls the dead, even as far back as Homer. Meanwhile, what's equally interesting is that Homer doesn't ever actually note that this Persephone, this queen of the dead and wife of Hades, is also the daughter of Demeter. She's mentioned as the daughter of Zeus once, but not Demeter explicitly. 
That isn't to say that she wasn't understood to be Demeter's daughter at this time or even in those sources when the when this was all being developed. It's just possible it doesn't come up. It's usually the father who's referenced anyway. Still, it's interesting to note these little variations. Of course, by the time of Hesiod and his Theogony, Persephone as queen of the underworld is absolutely the same Persephone as Kore, her other name, daughter of Demeter. Now, Kore is Persephone's alternate name, her original name, maybe, because it, it means maiden. It means girl. She is a girl, a maiden, until she's abducted by Hades and brought beneath the earth. And then she is very much Persephone, a name which means bringer of death. Fucking badass. And speaking of that husband... As I've told you in the past episodes, the story of their marriage comes almost entirely from the Homeric Hymn to Demeter, one of the most beautiful and heartbreaking pieces of ancient literature that we have. There are only a handful of Homeric hymns that are long, like this one, that give us deep and detailed insights into these origins of the gods. This hymn tells the story from Demeter's point of view, but it's also the only POV that we have, and so it's the one I personally work off of. I say that because every time I dive into the story of Persephone and Hades, it gets contentious. I get it. People love this couple. They see this as romantic. So you have every right to do that, to see it in whatever way you choose. No judgment. <laughs> but I'm just here to bring you the sources that exist, and they are not kind to this relationship. Hades abducts Persephone. He opens up the earth beneath her feet and he grabs her, snatches her, throwing her into his chariot and bringing her beneath the earth while she screams out in terror. There, beneath the earth, in this underworld, he assaults her and makes her his wife. All of this, though, while tragic and horrifying, is sanctioned by Persephone's father, Zeus. And thus, technically speaking, it is totally above board. It is legal. It is a legal marriage that they have. Demeter, though, spends years in search of her daughter and causes the whole of the earth to fall fallow in her sadness. Finally, she convinces Zeus to let her see her daughter, and in the end, the compromise is that Persephone can spend half the year in the world of the living as goddess of spring with her mother, Demeter, and half the year in the underworld as goddess of the dead with her husband, Hades. This, as every version will tell you, is understood to be why the Earth has seasons. I've told the story in way more detail in my episode on Persephone and Demeter, so I'm not going into all of the details now, but one thing I have learned recently, thanks to Dr. Ellie McEnroberts, whose name will come up often in this episode, is that Persephone is very likely under the earth in the underworld with her husband in the summer, not in the winter as is usually described in the stories. It may seem like the earth is sad in the winter, that this is when Demeter is in mourning, missing her daughter. But in fact, in Greece, it's when everything has a chance to grow, only to be harvested in the springtime before the world gets too hot for much else to grow. Ellie did a wonderful TikTok on this, which is how I learned it. So I've linked to her TikTok in this episode's description if you want to learn more or just so, so much more about Persephone on the underworld broadly. Ellie is your person. 
For all your sakes, though, I won't dwell on the origins of Persephone and Hades' relationship. Instead, let's look at their time as a married couple. These two have an interesting role in the mythology. They are both a vital part of it and basically have no stories of their own. The only detailed story featuring the couple as main characters is that Homeric hymn to Demeter, and even still that's mostly about Demeter. And yet, they appear in countless, and I mean countless, other myths. And that is simply because if you're traveling to the world of the dead, you're going to encounter Hades and Persephone. So they're in the Odyssey, or rather Persephone is, as I mentioned earlier. They're in the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. They're in Heracles' story of stealing Cerberus. Persephone, of course, features heavily in Theseus' absurd attempt to abduct her alongside his shittiest friend Pirithous. In that case, Persephone wasn't having any of that shit and, and punished them by strapping them to chairs in the underworld and just leaving them there. Anytime anyone has dealings with the dead or the world of the dead, the underworld itself, anytime anyone completes a catabasis, that is, a descent to the underworld, there's Persephone sitting in her throne alongside Hades, rocking that life as dread goddess of the dead. But stories? Yeah, they're not really in any stories, which frankly is fascinating in itself. It's another case of priorities, you know, like in the wider realm of oral storytelling, featuring stories taking place heavily in the world of the dead or, or featuring as main characters the gods of the dead, it just wasn't a priority. People were concerned with the living, with the world of their own, where the heroes and gods interact with living mortals. A catabasis here or there is great, but a detailed story entirely set in the underworld? It's much less fun. So instead, we're left with loads of little details, anecdotes featuring our girl Persephone. She's come up in countless episodes of mine, but we don't really have much that just features her specifically. Of course, there is also the Eleusinian mysteries to contend with. While we don't necessarily have extensive stories from those mysteries, Persephone featured heavily. However, those stories are for another day, a whole series when I have the ability and time to go into full-blown obsessive research mode. Until then, this is the Persephone that we have outside of that mystery cult. She and Hades live in their realm of the dead, ruling over the deceased, and briefly interacting with the living when they dare to enter that realm. What do we know about their relationship in the traditional mythology of ancient Greece? They are childless. Unlike most of the Olympian couples, other than maybe Aphrodite and Hephaestus, these two don't have any children between them. This is, you might imagine, closely related to the whole death thing. When you're the king and queen of the dead, there isn't a lot of life to be had. And when Persephone is up on Earth, giving life, acting as goddess of spring, Hades is nowhere to be found. And so they live as a, a childless couple. Frankly, it's one of the only things I personally like about them as a couple. Live that childless life. Rock on. Persephone. <laughs> except, okay, fine, except. I know many of you are just screaming a name at me right now, just yelling it with all your souls. Because like I said, in that traditional realm of Greek myth, these two have no kids. But as I taught you so recently, there's a whole other realm of weird, very non-traditional Greek mythology. Those damned Orphics.
fucking Orphix, man, just screwing with everything we think we know about Greek myth, screwing with everything I think I know about Greek myth specifically. Because everything I just told you about how Persephone and Hades are famous for not having any children at all, toss that out of your brains because I'm about to share the Orphic variation. The story of their daughter, Malinui. That's right. I finally said it outside of the opening of this podcast. Malinui. Malinui is absolutely fascinating, but for reasons I have yet to figure out fully myself. Because here's the thing about Malinui. She is really barely barely in the mythology at all let alone that it's just orphic like at all i will get into what exists about her don't worry but first i want to try to comprehend her now i don't i don't dive into pagan worship on this show because it's a minefield that i'm just not prepared to get into so to be clear i'm not talking about modern hellenistic worship in this case just the general idea of malinui When I tweeted asking for spooky season suggestions, I had probably like at least five people suggest I cover Malinui. And so when I saw her name mentioned so many times by my followers, I thought, holy shit, like what have I been missing that I've barely heard this name before? I got five people suggesting I cover her for spooky season and I've never heard of her. So I went looking. Theoi.com, my life source, is nearly blank. She's so missing from ancient sources that they have nothing on her. Then I decided I wanted to use her on a TikTok, but discovered I couldn't find a single ancient visual representation of her or anything other than modern illustrations. But there were so many modern illustrations of her. So now I'm fascinated by where is she appearing in pop culture or, or something that people online are so aware of her. But when the ancient sources are almost non-existent? Fucking fascinating. Did I look into it further? No, I was too busy looking for ancient stuff on her. But I'm, in- I'm intrigued. Still, I am me, and so I stick to ancient sources. And what are those ancient sources? Well, there is one. One! And that's this Orphic hymn that I read to you at the top of this episode. That appears to be basically it for Malinui. I think her name appears on like a tablet somewhere. (laughs) That's it. There's some interpretation that we can get into though, into this hymn, and we can learn a bit more about her that way. But still, it's Orphic. So thank the fucking gods I've already explained the realm of Orphism to you all. So let's just talk about Malinui and and how she is Orphic as hell. Malinui was a goddess or a nymph of the underworld whose job it was to bring nightmares and madness upon the people of Earth. She has some interesting similarities to the Irenaways, the Furies, and she is most importantly, though, a daughter of Persephone. Because remember, it is only in the Orphic tradition that Persephone ever has any children. In the traditional widespread of mythology of ancient Greece, she is she completely is childless. Whereas in the Orphic, she has Malinui and Zagreus. Again, that she is childless in the traditional mythology really makes sense. Because when you're the king and queen of the dead, you're not particularly ready to be bringing life into the world. But then Malinui is different. She is this daughter of Persephone and Zeus, but also Hades. Yeah. So the thing about the Orphic tradition, too, is how much they loved a good duality. And incest. 
they loved incest a lot. I think they saw it differently. I won't try to explain it, but whew, is it heavy in there. But this duality is what we're most concerned with here. In the Orphic tradition, Hades and Zeus get conflated. They become a kind of singular god who inhabits both the world of the dead and that of the living, with the differences between the two gods kind of manifesting depending on where he's ruling at any given time. The Orphic tradition was a lot less concerned with stories in the way that we think of Greek mythology and much more about conceptualizing like greater, bigger ideas. If you're doing the family tree math here too, this does mean that Persephone in the Orphic tradition is married to her father uncle and also has a child with that same father uncle that is both father and uncle. And of course, as I always like to remind you, Hades is her uncle on both sides. Because what did I say about the incest? Melinoe was born on the banks of the Cocytus River, the river of wailing in the depths of the underworld. We honestly, though, know so little about her beyond where she was born there in the underworld and who she's the daughter of. But being the daughter of this dual Hades-Zeus character means that she embodied both sides of that, or those gods? That she had influences from both the world of the living and that of the dead. This is sometimes translated in a way that is super problematic now. It's translated as her physicality having both white and black skin, which is majorly ick because it's explicitly linking dark skin to evil in a way that ancient Greek did not. Uh, but the translations do. I wanted to bring it up because it is inherent to translations more recently, but also farther back. It's not from the ancient sources. More newer appropriate translations have her as a dual goddess, inhabiting the lightness of Olympus and the physical darkness of the underworld with nothing to do with her skin tone or color. I actually adjusted my reading at the beginning of this episode to reflect this because we're not here to perpetuate something like that. That translation was from like the 18th century, so you just know that dude was putting racism into it. <sighs> In lighter news, what else do we know about Malinui? Well, there are theories that maybe she was a kind of representation of Hecate, or that she facilitated some movement to the underworld, kind of like Hermes, except because she's explicitly linked to nightmares, this adds a kind of nefarious quality to her. But besides that, there really is nothing. She's the subject of this one Orphic hymn, which doesn't really tell a story, just makes some statements about her. It's frustrating. Yes. But as I've said so many times before, it's also what makes Greek myth so utterly fascinating. Like, what did they think about Melinoe that we don't know? Did she appear in stuff that wasn't Orphic that we don't have? Like, what about her broadly is lost? Was she more important than we think? Was she featured in more stories? Or... Was she like so many minor deities? Deities where really all we know about them is the basics of the role they played in the world. Like Nike or Hypnos, these gods that are just concepts more than characters. <sighs> Regardless of all these wild questions, Melinoe is pretty damn spooky and badass just bringing nightmares wherever she goes, even with how little we know about her. And speaking of knowing very, very little about minor deities of the underworld, let's talk about the Ari, Macaria, and Mormo. 
Now, it's listed in my sources on this episode's description, but I want to specifically thank Dr. Ellie Mackin-Roberts, fan favorite guest, friend of mine who's been on the show, to both talk about Persephone and Alcestis. I'm thanking her for her book, Heroines of Olympus, because it made this bit super easy for me. In fact, I'm just going to quote this book when it comes to the R.I., because it's simple and perfect. Quote, The R.I. were a group of women who were personifications of the curses people placed upon their murderers at the moment of death, and they worked to avenge the spirits who called them up. How great is that? A group of personification deities whose role was so specific as to be dedicated to people who called out curses when they're being murdered. Fuck yeah. Alternatively, there's Makaria. Makaria was a minor goddess who, like the Ari, was a personification deity, but quite different from them, she represented a blessed death. Meanwhile, Mormo, according to Dr. Mac and Roberts' wonderful book, quote, may have originally been a mortal woman who turned to magic and afterwards gained a place among the lesser divine of the underworld. Intriguing, I know. She goes on to explain that Mormo's name, quote, was invoked by mothers attempting to scare their children into good behavior. Also, the story of her transformation may have included eating children for their youth. So while we know not a lot about her, Mormo was a super fun lady and a part of an awesome practice of mothers scaring their children into behaving. Just deeply interesting and weird. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. 
Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. So those are many of the goddesses roaming about in the underworld, contributing to the afterlives of the ancient Greek people, at least when it comes to the mythology. But what about how the very real and very alive people of the ancient world interacted with these chthonic deities of the underworld? Let's look at them, the reality of it all, the practices of the people paying their respects to the world of the dead while they're still alive. Now again, one day I will dive really deep into the Eleusinian mysteries, which is the most important evidence that we have when it comes to interacting with the realm of the dead and the afterlife broadly, but there is just too much research to be done. It needs its own whole series. So until then, this little examination of human practices relating to these chthonic cuties will be some of the deepest I dive in to the interactions of the living with those of the dead. The best source we have for this sort of day-to-day experience, and one with the most examples, is our new friend Pausanias. I've mentioned him a few times recently and will continue to, particularly when I get to my series on Sparta that's coming up in January. But Pausanias was a Greek travel writer. He was writing in the Roman period in the 2nd century CE. So he's writing really late in the grand scheme of Greece, but he's still like, 1800 years in the past from us now and thus had access to a a whole other world one that we we have completely lost now so we're we're really grateful for pausanias he traveled around the greek world and he talked to people everyday people asking for their stories asking about the regions they lived in and then he documented what he saw there too what temples existed what sanctuaries everything like that who was worshipped This is how we know so much about these various areas and like temples which are mostly gone or in such ruins that it would be tricky for us to figure out as much about them without Pausanias giving us all of these details. So thank the gods for him because, well, he also talked about sanctuaries and worship of Chthonic gods. Many instances that Pausanias describes are are pretty vague. Like he says that in Corinth, there were a number of images of Zeus, one of which had the epithet Chthonios attached to it, which would suggest it meant Hades. It's confusing, but again, it's similar to that idea of conflating Zeus and Hades. Less Orphic, but it's something that still happened. As far as I understand it, Hades and Zeus and maybe Poseidon too, for that matter, are more linked than we often think. Like, they're the supreme leaders of their respective regions, their brothers. And so if you've got an image of Zeus, but you're calling it the Zeus, i.e. the god of the underworld, then it's Hades, but it's also Zeus. The word Zeus is where we get the word deus from, like god broadly, if that helps. Pausanias also tells of a temple in Mycenae in Argos where there were wooden statues of Hades, Persephone, and Demeter. I would imagine these are together in reference to the Eleusinian Mysteries, since they're all associated with that cult. Meanwhile, in Treason, Pausanias describes a temple of Artemis, where there were, quote, altars to the gods said to rule under the earth, Hades and Persephone. 
It's here, they say, Semele was brought out of Hades by Dionysus, and that Heracles dragged up the hound of Hades. So here we're getting these really specific references to stories that happen in the underworld, and I'm realizing I can't believe I haven't talked about Semele and Dionysus coming out of the underworld yet, so we're going to get to that soon. Uh, but basically just uniting these ideas without a specific temple to underworld gods, because as far as I understand it, you're not building a temple to gods of the dead. That feels dangerous. Instead, you're worshipping them at other, more earthly gods' sites. Pausanias also describes a sanctuary in Athens, one actually dedicated to the Arenaways, the Furies, where there were images also of Hades, Hermes, and Gaia. There, he says, people recently acquitted at the Areopagus would sacrifice to these gods in thanks for their acquittal. <laughs> now, I, I could move on to other sites like this now, but you just know me. I'm nothing if not thorough. So let's look at some details about what is going on at this site in Athens. Firstly, a sanctuary to the Arenaways, you say? How incredibly cool and also morbid and like, why? <laughs> well, let me tell you. The Arenaways have a particular association with that area of Athens and with the Areopagus specifically. The Areopagus, as I mentioned very recently, is where they would try people accused of murder and other particularly heinous crimes. And the Arenaways are the deities who would punish such crimes. Their connection to this area is really emphasized in the trilogy of plays by Aeschylus, the Oresteia. It's why the third play is called the Eumenides, which is the kinder name for the Furies. Orestes is tried there in the Areopagus, and the Arenaways feature heavily. So we've got this really explicit connection to the deities in charge of divine vengeance in one of the most famous plays of ancient Greece, connecting them to this area of Athens. And now, hundreds of years later, Pausanias is there talking about a very real sanctuary associated with not only the Arenaways, but these other deeply chthonic gods. Hades, of course, because duh, he's the god of the dead. You're going to sacrifice to him if you've just been acquitted of murder and are propitiating to the Arenaways. And then Hermes, though, because he's the one who brings people down to the world of the dead. And so he's the person who would have brought whoever did die in this situation down to the underworld, that wonderful psychopomp that he is. And then Gaia, who is, well, Earth, and that's she's pretty fucking chthonic in her own way. There wouldn't be a chthonic without Gaia. <sighs> now, this isn't to suggest that there was explicit worship of Hades going on. He doesn't seem to have been a god regularly worshipped in the more traditional sense. Rather, they're keeping him happy, sacrificing and showing their thanks, because in this case, well, they've just escaped a murder charge. Meanwhile, Pausanias does tell us of one place where Hades is actually worshipped, and even he is clear that this is not common. He's speaking of a temple in Elis, in the Peloponnese. It's a long passage, but it's fucking fascinating. A look into the possible worship, worship of the god of the dead. So I'm going to read it to you. Quote, the sacred enclosure of Hades and its temple in Elis are opened once every year, but not even on this occasion is anybody permitted to enter except the priest. The following is the reason why the Elians worship Hades. They are the only men we know of to do so. 
It is said that when Heracles was leading an expedition against Pelos in Elis, Athena was one of his allies. Now among those who came to fight on the side of the Pylians was Hades, who was the foe of Heracles but worshipped at Pelos. Homer is quoted in support of the story, who says in the Iliad, And among them, huge Hades suffered a wound from a swift arrow, when the same man, the son of Aegis-bearing Zeus, hit him in Pelos among the dead, and gave him over to pains. If in the expedition of Agamemnon and Menelaus against Troy, Poseidon was, according to Homer, an ally of the Greeks, it cannot be unnatural for the same poet to hold that Hades helped the Pylians. At any rate, it was in the belief that the god was their friend, but the enemy of Heracles, that the Elians made the sanctuary for him. The reason why they are wont to open it only once each year is, I suppose, because men, too, go down only once to Hades. Again, okay, long quote. That was the whole quote. And how fascinating is that? Now, of course, he's linking it so explicitly to mythology and, and mythology that's hundreds of years older than he is. So who's to say what's really going on here in terms of what the, the real Elians were doing in that temple? But fuck if I don't want to believe everything Pausanias just said about why they're the only ones to have a sanctuary to Hades, why it's only open once a year. Ugh. Goosebumps. <laughs> and finally, of course, I would be doing fans of Laura Olympus a disservice by not... Finishing off this episode by mentioning a certain nymph of the underworld, Minthy. And Minthy, well, she's kind of just an anecdote more than anything else. There are no stories describing Minthy in detail, nor detailing anything she might have done in the underworld with Hades beyond, well, again, let's look at some ancient sources. In this case, it's a geographer named Strabo from the first century BCE. Strabo wrote of a mountain in Elis named Minthy. He explains that there, where there was also a region sacred to Hades, there the mountain was named for our nymph. Minthy herself was born, like Melinui, on the banks of the Cocytus River, and was a nymph of the underworld, just living her life until she developed a relationship with Hades. Now, it's deeply unclear whether the, this was consensual, though one of the two sources I found for Minthy does call it assault. In any case, we hear that Persephone, or maybe Demeter, gets jealous and transforms Minthy into Mint as punishment. In the case of it being Demeter, it's noted that Minthy also compared herself favorably to Persephone, saying that Hades was going to go away with her and leave the dread goddess behind. Not a good idea, as we all well know. Regardless, though, what's fascinating to me is the simple fact that this is essentially it, when it comes to Minthy. And yet we have multiple pieces of classical reception, one being Lore Olympus, that use her in such a specific and detailed way. I think there are modern people who've written her in as a bigger foil to Persephone, even in mythological retellings. Like, it adds drama. But she certainly isn't much in the ancient sources. Just a side note, really, like a brief suggestion that Hades wasn't always faithful to that woman that he kidnapped and married. Not the perfect husband after all. Can you hear my sarcasm there? I just want to make sure you can hear my sarcasm. In either case, thank you, Minthy, for being a much more interesting character in modern reception like Laura Olympus than you are in the ancient sources.
nerds, nerds, nerds. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I fucking love spooky season. I love researching all the spooky, spick, scary, and and bringing it all to you. Now, this episode, as I was recording it, felt a little uh disjointed and weird, and I hope it made sense. This is me trying to throw all of the underworld at you, uh, without having any kind of coherent story to work off of. But it's all interesting. I know you all want to know these details, so just. I hope you uh, listen through and and just bore with me. Now, I realize these episodes in this spooky season haven't been particularly spooky in their recording. It's mostly because I have different music now and it lacks spooky qualities, but also because we are at this point in the stories where it's a lot of just me running down various theories and sources to you about spooky scary, because I've been doing these themed episodes for some time now and we are. We are deep into the weeds, as you just heard. Whew. That said, I've had some fresh inspiration looking at this year's episode, so I'm already looking forward to next year's, because I do love spooky season. I hope you're all enjoying the bonus episode that I put out for the new podcast Cupid 2. It's such a fun show, and you've got more bonus content coming. The next episode is dropping tomorrow. And so with that, I will leave us for with this review, this five-star review from the States by a bunch of symbols put together to resemble a fish. <laughs> I love this shit. I've been listening to Myths Baby for about three years. I did binge the first two years of it in a few weeks. I must say Oliva is magnificent. I have always been a myth geek, so this is perfect for me. She definitely does her research and carries these stories in a way that is fun and pulls the listener in. Is she raging feminist? Yes. But someone has to wipe clean the misogynistic and patriarchal Zeus in disguise droppings that these myths are covered in. And I love her for it. Keep at it, girl. Thank you. I I really loved that one. That was wonderful on many counts. Primarily, you got my name right. Oliva and not Olivia. What a concept. Thank you. (laughs) Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you will get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Well, thank you all again for listening. You were all the best. Not every episode of mine can be perfect. Sometimes it's disjointed nonsense all focusing around the underworld. And isn't that fun anyway, in its own special way? Yes, I think so. I am Liv, and I I love this shit very much. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal 
and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.